Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this this evening, and I'll tell you what, it was from a person that said, Carol, I want a girlfriend so that I can have some accountability. I'm single, and I don't have any reason to change. Now, you know what we know about sexual addiction is that there will be lots of opportunities for remorse and regret where you might tell yourself, most likely will tell yourself, I'm going to stop this. I'm sick of this. I don't want this in my life anymore. And then what happens? What happens is that the compulsion becomes strong again, and the next thing you know, you are headed for trouble. You're participating in the exact behaviors you said, I no longer want to be a part of. Now, you know, we probably need to weigh in on this, but I'm telling you, my married sex addicts in good recovery they, they think they're lucky stars for being in a relationship because it does help them to be accountable. It does help them to do the next right thing. And so I guess what I'm saying is I can really relate to this email. It would be very hard to be single and to stop sexual addiction unless you are miserable. If you are tired of that compulsive behavior and you're ready to name and claim it, the next best thing is to tell somebody that you think can make a difference in your life. Maybe it's your father. Maybe it's your sister. Maybe it's an employer. But to let somebody know what's going on so that you expose yourself to someone else and also their concern. 
because this is the most difficult addiction to deal with. No doubt about it, process addictions are the toughest. And so I can really relate to the fact that, wow, you may not have experienced enough of a deal-breaking behavior to want to quit on your own. You know, if I have single men or women that have been arrested, um, they've lost one, two, or three jobs because of their sexual addiction. They've, you know, contracted AIDS. Some of the real deal-breaking behaviors, they will change. But what we do know to be true is that if there aren't deal-breaking behaviors, it's just super easy to say, I'm going to change and then you don't. So I can really appreciate that email. And again, go to some SAA or SAA meeting and let the fellowship know that you don't feel like you have enough accountability. In some ways, they are your family of choice. And um, boy, Being a family of choice means that they can help hold you accountable. And that's what Carol the Coach says. Hey, I'm so happy to be with you tonight. I am really struggling with my online course. I've got everything I need. I know exactly what I'm going to say. I've made recordings. And my platform isn't allowing me to put it together. And they want me to use a platform I'm very familiar with, but I think it's dull. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Hold me accountable. I'll let you know next week how I'm doing. I wanted it done by the third week in July. Looks like I won't have it done until the end of August. But I will keep you posted. Because help, period, her, period, heal. This is going to be an online course to help you work through the book so that you can get through the book if you're not a reader. If you have no impetus to do the exercises, you got to do them. It's one of those things that when you work it, it works. But if you just do it half, oh, you know what I was going to say. If you just do it halfway, well, let's say that. It's not going to be as effective. You've got to put your heart in it. And that's why there's a heart on the book, with fingerprints, no less. Because we know that you can feel like a criminal when you've committed partner betrayal. And we know that you are the only person that can help her heal. I mean, she can do it herself if she asked you. But since you caused it, why not do it with her, for her, you know? Be the solution instead of the problem, right? And I'll tell you one more super exciting thing. I got my first royalty check today. And it was big. I mean, it was bigger than I thought it would be. Okay, it wasn't big, big, but it was big. And I said, wow, I need to make a copy and frame it. And then I need to add a couple of extra zeros to it and really make it something special. You know, because I do believe that. I am a coach, and I really believe that when you create things and you visualize them and you look at them, 
and it's easier to take them in. So if I want to make a million dollars selling books, I really do need to create a check that says a million dollars for help her heal. If I, if I want to, um, let's say, let me think of something that I want to do. Well, I've got a lakefront, and I want to sell all of the furniture in the lakefront. I need to imagine what it would be like to see it perfectly empty um, and perfectly where all my things are in the hands of people that I care and love. Oh, I'll sell them to strangers too, but I'd love to sell them to my friends. So think about something that you've wanted. And I'm going to ask you to do three things. I'm going to ask you to write down what it is you want, because when you write it down, you make it happen. Okay? The second thing I'm going to ask you to do is to close your eyes and visualize how it feels to be that, do that, see that, hear that, to experience that sensation. That really is the hard part. I mean, some people can do it for a few seconds, but to really get into a positive fantasy about doing something that you've really always wanted, that's a healthy choice, um, that starts the energy in motion. So write it down because you'll make it happen. Feel the feelings. And then apply what we call the rule of five. The rule of five is when you do five things each week to make your goal a reality. Okay. That's what I've been doing with this online course and certainly spinning my wheels in some way but I'm getting good experience. I've joined a Facebook group on how to do this. I've gone ahead and made some videos. I've created all the transcripts. I've contacted my publisher to get the worksheets. I mean, I have done a lot of stuff to make my life happen because that's what I believe you have to do. And if you run into troubles, you just kind of chuck it up to, hey, You know, this is part of the learning curve. This is part of what it takes to make something happen. It doesn't always run smooth as silk, even though I would like it to. Now, I was working with a man the other day who's really had some significantly good recovery. And his fantasies are coming back about acting out. And he's flirting with disaster. And he's clicking on thumbnail images. And he's putting words in Google to see if he can get by um, past his covenant eyes and his filters. I mean, he's really actively pursuing what I call flirting with inner circle behaviors. He wants to believe their middle circle behaviors, but I explain that that's denial. You know, denial stands for don't even know I'm lying. And this man is not only lying to himself, but he is minimizing, rationalizing, 
justifying his behaviors. He's telling himself since it didn't really open up anything, he's not in violation. But you and I know he's in the midst of activating his sexual addiction because why don't people understand this? Sex addiction is a brain issue. It's not like, okay, you wanted to do something, you looked at it for 15 minutes, and then you decided not to click on it. That was only deliberation. The truth of the matter is our brains are so powerful that when you're deliberating on something for 5, 10, 15 minutes, you might as well be doing it because you've already activated that reward center in your brain. So the point is not, okay, Carol, I'll go ahead and do it. The point is you cannot allow yourself that kind of manipulation, playing those kinds of games. You've got to be true to yourself. And boy, that's when you stop lying to yourself. When you can be true to yourself. Now, The truth of the matter is he has a very compulsive, compulsive um, impulse control problem. Some people have been very traumatized. Some people have experienced abuse in their backgrounds. And that oftentimes leads to sexual trauma reenactment. And then there are those people that have been neglected. They've never attached to their parents. They've never been able to trust they can get what they need. And, you know, Patrick Karn says, wow, that that is the toughest kind of injury. It results in an attachment injury. And tonight I've got Kelly McDaniel on, and she is truly a pioneer in her field. She's the first clinician to name mother hunger as an attachment injury. And she's done a lot of research in exploring the repercussions of bonding, or I should say not bonding, with an emotionally compromised mother. I can really relate to this. Um, Love my mother to death. But she had her mother walk out on her when she was seven or eight. And that resulted in her alcoholic father, who was in and out of recovery, my grandfather. That resulted in him doing his best to take care of her, but eventually he had to put her in a boarding school. He knew he just didn't have what it took. So I grew up with a mother who never had any mothering. And consequently, she didn't know how to mother. My mother didn't drive. She didn't cook. She didn't clean. And she was somewhat loving and somewhat affirming until she got a crippling disease, and then she could no longer give. It was all she could do to kind of breathe in her own life. And so, again, when you have an emotionally compromised mother, you really learn how to fend for yourself, and attachments may be more difficult. And Kelly McDaniel is going to be talking to us about something she refers to as mother hunger. You know, she has really worked hard 
to destigmatize and reduce pathological diagnosis of women who suffer from this mother hunger. And so I've had her on before. She really works on intimacy and tolerance and getting down to the heart of addictive relational patterns. And I just am always excited to see what she has to say because she has made this her forte. So I want to welcome Kelly to the show because I truly believe mother hunger is something that many of my listening audience may never have heard of. So Kelly, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Carol. It's good to be here. Well, thank you so much. And I'm just really excited about this terminology, mother hunger. And I was wondering... Could you tell our listening audience what you see as mother hunger and how does it emerge? I'd I'd be glad to. And um, I want to make sure you can hear me okay as I am on a cell phone and sometimes it breaks up a bit. So hopefully you can hear me. Loud and clear. How about me? Can you hear me? Oh, good. I hear you beautifully. Yes, I hear you beautifully. Thanks, Carol. Yeah. Yes. So what is mother hunger exactly? And isn't that the million-dollar question? I think that um, mother hunger is is multidimensional. Um, and for people who I've met who have it, it's almost the minute they hear the term, they know they have it, but it, it's not very clear how to articulate it. And I think that's because mother hunger, as I understand it, happens when we are very little, when we're really young, before we have language and before we have explicit memory. So in the formative months of life, in the early years of life, when our primary needs are being met by the primary caregiver, these are basic needs, Carol. These are the needs for comfort or nurturing. I I look at those two words very similarly the need for protection, and then ultimately the need for guidance. And that comes a little bit later. But if those three needs are met for us as children, or even if two of the three are met for us, most of us won't have mother hunger. But when those needs are not met, especially in those early months and years, it sets up a craving. It sets up a longing. And at its worst, it can set up complex trauma. So what I've done is try to name it so that those of us who have it um, can begin to heal from it. it. It's hard to heal what we don't know we have, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I, I do have a question. I thought about this today because I was meeting with a man whose father yeah. died, his mother was emotionally unavailable, and he mm. described mother hunger and it definitely yeah. affected his ability to attach and be relational, and it kind of developmentally compromised him. And I thought, I wonder, mm-hmm. I know your specialty is yeah. mother hunger for women, but do you see this to be right. true in men also? Oh, most definitely I do. I, I really do. And I think the men with mother hunger um, are, are, there are just so many. And I think it's difficult for men sometimes to identify a longing for maternal needs that weren't met because what does that mean 
for men? Does that mean he's weak? Does that mean he's not complete? And I think um, sometimes it's easier to identify for a man when his mother was nagging or suffocating or kind of irritating. Not that men want to talk about that because there's a code of you must respect your mother. But a lots of men know what it feels like to kind of be mom's surrogate spouse or um, her confidant, and that has an, that has its own legacy that's very very sad. But when a boy is longing for the absent mother, either she was cold, depressed, maybe she was addicted and unpredictable, and so he never really could count on her. It's really hard sometimes for men to identify that particular wound. Well, I agree so much. And as a matter of fact, it sends such um, confusing messages. In this man's case, he was not used as a surrogate uh, spouse. He didn't know where he fit in. He didn't feel like she needed him at all. And he actually referenced something I'm sure you're not surprised about. He said, I wanted to be there for her. I wanted to help her. I wanted to be the little yeah. man in the family since dad was gone, and she'd have nothing to do with me. So yeah. you know, when you don't get your needs met by a parent, regardless of whether you're male or female, it really does leave some wounding and some giant holes, does it not? I think it does, and I, I'm so touched by this man's story because it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of mother hunger, you know, his desire to be there for his mother. If I were to discuss that with him, I'd want to know what were you hoping would be there for you if you could be there for her? Because it sounds to me like he was really missing the nurturing that a mother would give. He was missing some of the, guidance from his mother and just her presence and to identify those needs would help him I did would help him find ways to meet them now um generally it's too late for a mother to do that oh I agree absolutely now let me ask you because obviously you've done so much work in this field um tell me about the attachment injury the, the bonding, or, or I should say lack thereof, that occurs when there's mother hunger. Well, I know you find this in your work, too, that it's just kind of exciting that we're now in a place where attachment theory is becoming the overarching theory for all other psychological frameworks. So whether it's neurobiology or it's developmental theory, um, psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, everything is really funneling into an understanding of attachment, which I think is really helpful for the folks that we see that are dealing with relationship betrayal, that are dealing with compulsive romantic habits, um, disordered eating, and, and trouble with commitment. Don't you, aren't you finding that attachment theory really helps? Oh, 100%. And like you said, it's been around for a while, but we clinicians are really understanding and, and helping our clients to understand the different attachment styles and, and what they're looking for and what they're not getting and, and perhaps what they're even communicating to others, which is typically not necessarily healthy 
if they're really wanting a solid relationship. Right. We can only communicate what we, in fact, have learned in our families. Um, And I think if we are having trouble early on with attachment because our primary caregiver is not able to attach well to us, whatever we do to adapt to our mother, whatever we do to adapt to the way she's loving us, that's the way we're going to present in the world. Um, So if we needed to be anti-dependent and somewhat avoidant, that's how we're going to approach the world and it's going to be difficult. If on the other hand, she was unpredictable and we are on the other end of that spectrum, more anxious, more nervous, that's also how we're going to present in our adult relationships. Um, I hope I'm answering the question. I know you were asking about kind of the attachment injury that is mother hunger, and I'm not sure I'm explaining it because I get so excited about attachment theory, which is a little different than the actual injury, right? Absolutely. But, you know, I, I feel like your work is groundbreaking, and it really does talk about that loneliness that begins early in life, that aching for that attachment, and perhaps even before a child is birth. I mean, we've got a lot of research that shows that people can be wounded in utero. So here we've got potential clients who have been wounded early, 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 perhaps before they could even speak, and that vulnerability of not getting your needs met keeps moving forward into infancy and toddler age and 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 it creates does it not um really unhealthy ways of getting one's needs met well ultimately yes the ways we learn to meet those needs may in fact be unhealthy but at the time they're pretty resourceful pretty resilient i have some amazing stories of Small children who, let's, I'm thinking of one in particular, um, who was witnessing her parents have a terrible argument and she's seeing their, their anger, she's seeing their out of control rage and she can't do anything about it. But what she does do is she sneaks into the pantry and finds the brown sugar and just she can remember how it felt in her hand, how it felt in her mouth, and the taste of the brown sugar, and she just kept eating it until essentially she was full and satiated and numb and put herself to sleep. So we have stories like this where children and have found ways to cope with stress that was unmanageable, stress that their bodies and their brain couldn't make sense of. And this child had a memory of that, but I have many examples where the memories are in the body but not cognizant. So by the time somebody's ready to address some of that longing, that craving, that loneliness, their body is also in not feeling well. They, they've got autoimmune issues. They may have some um, stubborn weight problems or forms of eating that aren't working well, um, all kinds of addiction, but also just chronic pain. Um, where the body is demanding some attention for this unmet need that goes way back. 
But you did mention in utero, and, and I'm glad to hear you bring that up. There's fabulous research right now about what's going on in utero. In fact, there's a documentary called In Utero that I like a lot with Dr. Gabor Mate and um, Rachel Yehuda is also part of this documentary, and she's she's been doing dynamic research that shows what happens in utero um, in the last trimester of pregnancy when the stress hormone cortisol travels through the placenta to meet the infant and how these babies can be born um, wired toward more anxiety. So it's, it's powerful research. It's very helpful for looking at what happens in those early months. Yeah, and, you know, we're such a research-based um, clinical society that it really helps to get the research. I mean, we know anecdotally and through our own intuition what we've seen over and over and over again, but it's nice to see the research to substantiate it. So now I'm going to ask you some technical questions about mother hunger if you don't care. You oh, that'd be wonderful. Talk about, sure. Yeah, you talk about the spectrum of mother hunger, and we all are looking at spectrums in all sorts of different ways. Tell me about the spectrum that you're referencing. Good. Um, yes, we are using spectrum in all kinds of ways, which I really appreciate because I think when we put things in categories, that's useful if we're a statistician, statistician or if we're doing research. So to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, yes, it's nice to have research, but sometimes we can get so t- scientifically oriented that we almost get in our own way and a spectrum gets us out of that, right? So we don't necessarily need categories to understand what's going on with mother hunger. For example, attachment theory gives us anxiously attached, avoidantly attached. These are both forms of an insecure attachment. Do we all fit nice and tidy in one of those categories? No, we're on a spectrum, but we needed the categories to do the research. So I look at this with mother hunger where there are folks with mother hunger who demonstrate more anxious, more nervous. Um, They really know they have mother hunger. They're aware that they missed out on something. They are aware that they're lonely. They miss and want a close connection with someone, and it's almost as if no one ever fits the bill. Whereas people that are on the other end of the spectrum, more avoidant, uh, more dismissive, if I bring up the idea of mother hunger, they really look at me as if I'm speaking another language. Like they don't register need for anyone, much less their mother. Um, And so generally people that had to shut down that need for a mother very, very young are going to be on one end of the spectrum toward avoidant dismissive, or if mother was really suffocating, they could be more avoidant dismissive um, where they got too much and they don't want any more. So I think that's what I'm wanting to indicate with speaking about mother hunger on a spectrum is that it looks very different and that depends on which of those three needs you missed out on as a girl, as a little boy. Did you miss out on nurturing? Were you not protected from other adults or aggressive siblings, later from teachers or coaches? Or did you miss out on guidance? Were you looking for a mother that you could admire? Did you long for a role model? So if any one of those three is missing, you're going to be somewhere on that spectrum. 
if all three are missing, mm-hmm. that's what I that's what I call third degree mother hunger. Got it. And again, you know, so, you talked about avoid. Yeah. I wanted you to clarify to my listening audience. How would you give a lay person's definition of avoidant dismissive? Okay, good. Yeah, so people that are avoidant dismissive, well, I could talk about how it forms, or maybe I could just talk about how it looks in adulthood. Um, So how it might look in adulthood is that, yeah, folks who are more avoidant tend to get a sense of, self-worth from what they achieve during a day, how many activities they're involved with. Um, They tend to be fairly anti-dependent when it comes to romantic partners. In fact, after, let's say, the first 90 days to 100 days of a relationship, a lot of times people who are avoidant dismissive are easily bored by the relationship, they may terminate it. They may develop what starts to look like an allergy where they're just like, ugh, get this person away from me. Um, Because they're just not comfortable with vulnerability, with sharing emotions. They're very good at sharing ideas. Um, Their logic is usually exceptional. Um, These folks can get a lot done in a day, typically. So, but talk about a feeling and someone who's more avoidant is going to get kind of drowsy or bored or fully dissociated um, depending on the context and depending on who's asking the questions. So am I answering your question? Is that helping? Yes, you are. Absolutely. By giving those kind of examples, it helps our audience know, hey, this is what avoidant Mm -hmm. dismissive looks like. Okay. So now we've talked about, um, the spectrum, and we've talked about mother hunger being what you referenced as it, it can be third degree mother hunger. Now, sure, how and I'm happy treat, to talk some more about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I want to know how you treat the different forms of mother hunger because I know you do incredible intensives. Mm. Um. Yeah. In fact, Carol, I find that for treating mother hunger, intensives are super helpful, but we can talk about that. What what I'd like to speak to is I kind of dropped this term, third-degree mother hunger, without really explaining it. So um, it's really why I developed intensives, because what I was seeing is a lot of third-degree mother hunger, which is people coming to me that none of those three needs were met, so they were missing out on comfort, missing out on protection, had been very vulnerable as children and had no real idea of who they are or wanted to be, which is a sign of missing out on some guidance or being overly restricted and um, growing up with so many rules that they never figured out their own. So I started to really see that these folks um, showed the same symptoms as people who have um, survived a domestically um, brutal or violent relationship. So, in other words, they mm. were showing signs of complex trauma. 
And and third degree mother hunger, I now understand it as a form of um, disorganized attachment. It, it's truly complex trauma. And when none of those needs have been met, a self never really gets to form. And so the work that needs to happen is is fairly lengthy and deep. And so anyone out there who's trained to do addiction work and to do trauma work at the same time um, is usually well suited to treat people with third degree mother hunger initially. But as people gain some strength and some ego security and feel a little more calm, then it's time to consider doing a deeper dive. And, and people that are, have missed out on such early needs typically need therapy one on one for long periods of time, more than an hour a week, more than an hour and a half a week. So that's why I started doing intensives where someone could have a whole two days of therapy, right? Or maybe even three, one on one though, not necessarily in a group because mother hunger first happened in dyad between a mother and an infant or a caregiver and an infant. And again, mother hunger refers to not having those needs met. Whoever the primary caregiver is, is whoever was going to meet those needs. Generally it's the mom, but it it isn't always. So um, it's really about the missing needs is what the term references. And so those needs were designed to be met by one caregiver according to attachment theory. And so what an intensive does is go back and somewhat mimic what it would have felt like to have somebody slowly contain and speak and listen to you. Yeah, I like that. And you know what I also like, Kelly? Um, By the way, I am talking with Kelly McDaniels, and she has created – a concept called mother hunger, and that's what we're talking about tonight. And when you said that these women need more than an hour, more than once a week, um, and that's why you created the intensives, one of the things that I believe is that in some ways you're modeling good mothering. You know, you're looking at what your client needs and saying, how can I get my client what she needs most? Exactly, exactly, and thank you for noticing that. I can hear that um, you're also offering good mothering, you know, and I think that that's why um, it's important to understand the different varieties of mother hunger because not every intensive, um, it's not a formula that it's one size fits all. So if I'm working with someone who's more avoidant, let's say, what I know is that that person is is really hungry for more guidance and responds better to tasks, um, not unlike the Carnes model of um, give me something to do. I want to check something off the list here. I want progress. I want guidance. Show me where I need to go. Whereas someone with third degree mother hunger who's on the more anxious end of the spectrum really needs a little more time in an intensive because there's going to be some time with the gravity blanket um, to calm the nervous system um, the injury can be so dysregulating that it takes um, a lot more attunement and eye contact than it does for someone mm-hmm. who isn't really needing that. Absolutely, that extra attachment that can occur right. from an, a focus that requires good eye contact and 
the gravity blanket mm-hmm. for somebody who may not know is a weighted blanket that adds security and comfort to one's experience. And we oftentimes use them in therapy when somebody is specifically anxious and doesn't feel safe, which is at the root of attachment issues and mother hunger. <laughs> I could not have said that better myself, Carol. Thank you. Yes, it's it's a limit to our license, right, that um, – we're, we're very boundaried and careful with touch, and so I love being able to place a gravity blanket onto someone who's anxious or or frightened or or very sad. And it's it's it feels like a human hug to have a blanket on you like that. It's weighted. It's wonderful. And I recommend that um, folks that have this form of mother hunger keep one on their bed at home. Mm-hmm. Great, great thought. Great idea. Now, obviously, you said that you felt like you needed to define, you know, what that third-degree mother hunger feels like. And I think you've done a nice job. Do you feel like you need any more definition? No, I think I wanted to be clear for the audience because I think disorganized attachment style is one of the – it's kind of the lost attachment style when when – folks go out to try to read about attachment. We hear a lot about anxious, so we hear a lot about avoidant, but we don't hear much about disorganized. And it's an interesting kind of omission in the literature. I don't know if you've noticed this as well. So sometimes folks are um, particularly confused about it, which is why I call it third degree mother hunger. That somehow distills it a bit, makes it, it, it makes sense that way. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read some information that I got from your website, and I want you to elaborate a little bit about it. Okay? Okay. Sure. All right. So you say mother hunger fuels problems with mood, food, and human relationships. And, of course, being in the addictive field, I I think about the fact that you referenced already food, but we may see women that look like they have sloth, sex, and love addiction when, when the root of their issues are mother hunger. Would you agree with that? 100%. In fact, it's because I work in the field with women who are struggling with love and sex addiction that I found mother hunger. I mean, I was looking for the root of this, and I kept seeing it over and over and over again that the longing for... I'm going to use something like archetypal, like the longing for Prince Charming was really a longing for mommy. Um, so it was through my work with um, women who are looking for perfect love, romantic bliss, that I discovered that the universal trait that unified all women, whether they um, seem to have serial lovers or just one person they were in love with or never even really had much luck with relationships, but mostly stayed in fantasy, was the common unifying thought was, I want that unconditional love that they didn't get and that, sadly, no lover can provide. Absolutely. And yet, again, that gets idealized and fantasized by looking for Prince Charming, which is what you just referenced. No one can have Prince Charming because Prince Charming doesn't exist relationships are experiential, they're realistic, and Prince Charming is in the movies. 
It's not in our lives. Right. And yet it's so it's so tragic that, you know, if you think about how our culture is infused with these images and we kind of market them to children. And so let's say we've got a child who is deprived, lonely, or frightened, let's say abused even, and has no safe place, can't turn to mom, can't turn to a sibling, is there, there's no place to go. So just like the brown sugar, the fantasy of what I'm seeing in this story or what I'm seeing on television becomes what I use to soothe myself. And so it happens very young that this idea that somebody will rescue me becomes attractive. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm thinking about a client that I had who really would not let go of the the prince and riding in on a white horse and really felt like that was true love and that's what she was going to look for. And in her relationship, she was one of a twin and the twin got very, very sick when she was about seven months and the mother had to attend to her sister for eight months and then her sister died, making her mother very, very depressed. And so... You know, here was a here was a relatively healthy mother that I'm sure would have done a good job, but between yeah. having to yeah. attend to a very sick infant and then becoming depressed herself at the loss of her child, she just was unavailable for her daughter to such a degree that the daughter started looking elsewhere for attachment, and she looked towards her father. And her father ended up molesting her. And so she knew that she could not count on him in a healthy way. And she developed this fantasy about being saved or rescued from the combination of both neglect and abuse. Well said. And that's a beautiful illustration of a number of things. One, at seven months of age, the brain is still in the largest growth spurt right, from zero to 18 months of age is the largest growth spurt where the the parts of our brain that are designed for human relationship, communication, and emotion is just exponentially growing. And during that time, she lost her baby sister and her mother, essentially, two huge losses. And twins always have a sense of each other. They've been in the womb together. So to lose a twin for many people I hear is one of the biggest losses in their life. So let's add her, then her mother was not available. Then the next transferred attachment, she's lost her sister, she's lost her mother, is her dad, and he abuses her. So I'm thinking how resilient that she found a fantasy to hold on to because for her to really know how alone she was would have been unbearable, impossible actually. Exactly, and such a good point, and I love the fact that you don't pathologize um, any kind of missing developmental um, attachment. You look for the resiliency in it so that you can help the client, I would assume, transition to another type of resiliency later on. Beautifully said. Yes, exactly. So, My sense is that you do similar work with the women and the men that you're working with. That I think that any form of addictive attachment 
at some point it saved our life and and that needs some respect because when I hear some of the stories of loss and grief and abuse, it's amazing to me sometimes that we all survive childhood. <laughs> but we do and we're resilient and we do it. And and I think it's where I get frustrated too because I do work primarily with women and I am a woman and I've grown up in this culture where terminology like um borderline personality disorder I'm sure on some level that's been helpful as far as getting um, medical care, but oftentimes it's so disparaging. It's it's meant to say this woman is just um, not redeemable or she's um, resistant or she's just too difficult. And I think when we can frame it through an attachment lens to look at how she's demonstrating what she learned to survive, um, it's an indicator of how much pain she must be in. It helps us develop more compassion as care providers. Absolutely. And we have a lot of clinicians and coaches that listen to this show. So hopefully we're helping them to realize that mother hunger isn't a pathology or a disorder. It's an injury. And that's what you keep bringing back to, to the forefront, that it is an injury. And that most kids do need that first experience of love, and when they don't get the love or the comfort or the protection, it's absolutely devastating. And so that's what we're talking about today, and that's called mother hunger. Um, So let me ask you, you're not blaming mothers for their inability to give to their children what their children need. Oh, gosh. No, and I think that that's always where it makes me a bit nervous to even talk about mother hunger, like mothers need anything else to feel badly about. Um, And as a mother myself, if I had known what I know today, I sure would like a do-over. But the beautiful thing is um, we always get another chance with our children if if we um, gain some humility and and can ask for forgiveness and, and, and offer better behavior, which is a good thing. But The truth is well-meaning mothers, mothers who desperately love their children, are not always the same thing as tuned-in mothers. You know, I think as women, we can only tune into someone as much as we're tuning into ourselves. And we've been taught for generations not to listen to ourselves, but to only take care of other people. We've been taught in a culture that values domination and and values aggression over inter- connectedness and warmth and um, community that our needs don't matter and that if we're going to be noticed, we're going to need to be pretty tough and pretty aggressive or eroticized and sexy. Um, Those qualities don't really make nurturing, tuned-in mothers. Those qualities make um, competitors and effective sex objects, and that's what patriarchal culture has on some level required. So those are the legitimate ways to have power. It's very disempowering to be a mother, and it's service work, and it's thankless, and and it's not paid. So <laughs> it, it's amazing to me that women take on the job of nurturing their children, and most women I know are doing the best they can, and still Mother hunger travels from generation to generation to generation. 
grandmothers give to their daughters and their daughters become mothers and give to their children only what they have. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, so oftentimes in our work with people in general, we are trying to um, break the generational dysfunctions and to help people to create healthier lives. And that's really what Mother Hunger is all about. It's helping a client understand what they didn't get and figure out healthy ways to get it. But it does take a long time because we are talking attachments. So Kelly, can you right. share with our listening audience your uh, the book that you're in the process of writing, uh, the intensives that you're doing, and what resources you think are available to any of our listening audience if they think that they have suffered with mother hunger? Oh, sure, I'd be happy to. Yes, um, if this term is something that your audience is resonating with, um, my first book, Ready to Heal, that was published by Gentle Path Press, and it's available on Amazon. Chapter 7 is all about mother hunger, and, and that is, um, it's out there, it's available, and it's ready to go if, if you want to read more about it. The book I'm working on now, which is an expansion of that chapter, um, will hopefully be available next year. In the meantime, though, I think that if this topic is intriguing to you, anything that you want to Google and read about attachment style will be helpful to start identifying what it is you might have missed out on and what it is you might need now. You can also go to my website if you find this interesting and take the Mother Hunger Quiz um, it's a short quiz. It only takes three or four minutes. There's ten questions, but even the questions might prompt some of your curiosity and your thinking. Um, if any of you that are listening are really struggling with heartbreak and heartache and the loneliness that you're sitting with feels familiar, almost like it's haunted you a lot longer than you would like, you might consider that this heartbreak that you're sitting with, it might be the most current one, but your first heartbreak might have happened very, very young and might be needing your attention. So I would ask you to explore literature on betrayal and heartbreak, but also look into um, Mother Hunger on my website if you'd like to know more. And, oh, sorry, the website is Kelly McDaniel Therapy. Yeah, it's just Kelly McDaniel with the word therapy after it. So kellymcdanieltherapy.com. You can also go there, motherhunger.org. Um, but most people find me, kellymcdanieltherapy.com. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I know is that the best way to figure out if something applies is to take questionnaires or take surveys or to take quizzes. And so literally Kelly has developed this quiz. It is only 10 questions and at least give you an idea of what you might need to work on next to be able to attach and to to fill that loneliness that so many of you have felt for such a long time. Because Kelly, you and I both know that when there's this wounding and this um, loneliness, Patrick Carnes talks about it, what ends up happening is that there is trauma reenactment. And that's why oh, yeah. so oftentimes 
people feed themselves with food or they go ahead and have provocative, um, unfulfilling relationships with men or women, and they just end up exacerbating that loneliness. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and generally, this is not even a it's, a, it's not a conscious process. It's what's been learned, and it, at the time, provides a temporary relief from the loneliness, which is just unbearable. And it makes sense because sitting still, sitting with that loneliness is one of the worst pains that as humans we have. That emotional ache, that loneliness pain, the body can't differentiate between that pain and literally having your arm cut off without any anesthesia. It's just terrible. Yeah, 100%. So is there anything, we've got one more minute, anything else you want to add um, to help our listening audience identify more about this? Well, sure. I, first of all, I just want to thank you for your time and energy. This is one of the most lovely um, interviews, respectful of the topic, and I really appreciate it, Carol, because I think that this is a difficult topic. It's it's difficult for people to talk about, and I think it's really hard to listen to because either we're a mother and we have regrets of how we've done it or we have our own achy loneliness for the way we were raised, and so listening to this is very challenging. And so thank you, and and I just want to thank your, your audience for their willingness to listen to this topic as well. And if Mother Hunger resonates for you I want to just say you're not alone at all and I also want to say I wish what we had um, were mother hunger support groups out there kind of like cancer survivor support groups because um, when we're going through something like this and we're alone with it which is loneliness on top of loneliness it's a form of disenfranchised grief and if we can share that with people it helps a lot so that's my wish is that the that you can find people to discuss this with, maybe a book study or something. <laughs> well, I absolutely yeah. love that. Plus, I believe when you name it, you claim it. And I was telling my listening audience that earlier in the show. And you just named and claimed something that I'm sure will evolve, and that is Mother Hunger Support Group. So if anybody mm. out there in yeah. the listening audience is interested in that, contact Kelly Daniels, or myself, and we can begin to put a list together and perhaps do an online or Zoom group um, to fulfill that need. And again, Kelly McDaniel's website is kellymcdanieltherapy.com. And you all know that you can reach me at carol at carolthecoach.com. Kelly, thank you so much. And I look forward to, to hearing more about the book once it's published. Wonderful. I will be in touch when it's published, and thank you so much for having me today. All right, Kelly, you take care. All right, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. So, again, that was Kelly McDaniel, and she is an expert in the field of mother hunger. And I am just so happy to be bringing you topics that you may not have heard about. If you're a man and you think you're experiencing that, send me a note. Let's see if we can't get something worked out. We said it applies to men, too. Um, and I'm meeting more and more men with sex and love addictions. So 
if you think you got one of those, you may have an issue with mother hunger. All right, as I say at the end of every show, hey, there is only one of you at all times. So fearlessly have a good week and the courage to be yourself. See you next time.